I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome back to Book Chat. We're your hosts, Bobby Palmer and Pandora Sykes, and we're covering for Skirt today because Skirt is off sick. God, I am excited for today's episode. Skirt is definitely off sick because it's really disgusting weather, so no skirts going on here. Listeners to this podcast will know that every month we each bring a book to chat about. The books have to be more than two years old. That's the only rule of book chat. And this month we're tackling two titans from the 90s. Before we do that, shall we tuck into some emails? Let's. We've had one email from Mary sharing a savage critique of Annie Ernaux in the Sydney Review of Books. We'll put the link to that in the show notes. Have you read it yet? Yeah, it's brilliant. It's 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 not sort of when I um when I knew it was going to be scathing, it's not what I actually expected from it. And it's all about um Ukraine and Russia and it's really, really fascinating. That's absolutely not what I was expecting. I'll give that a read. Another email from Emma in Stockholm who wants us to read 100 Years of Solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez because she's had it on her list for ages, but she needs some help to pick it up. She needs a boot up the arse. That's what I'm interpreting that as. I haven't actually read that yet. Should we add it to our list? Mm, I didn't love it. I I really thought I would love it, but I, I didn't. Maybe I should try it again. Maybe I wasn't in the right frame of mind. Although at the risk of upsetting the magical realism purists listening, I would tell Emma to skip it entirely and read some Murakami instead. Is it like The Master and Margarita? You mentioned magical realism, because I really want to tackle that, but after just one page, I don't think that's going to happen either. It's a bit like that, but it doesn't have the talking cat that walks on two legs and is is a demon, I think. Anyway, moving on. I only on. read and- one page. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, there is a talking cat. And it walks on two legs and it's a demon. Pandora, what are you reading right now? I just finished A Life of One's Own by Joanna Biggs, which was such an enjoyable read. Bobby, I think you'd really like it. It's a book by an editor. I think she's an editor at the LRB, Joanna Biggs. She is. She starts writing this nonfiction book as she is kind of slowly disentangling from her marriage. Um, and it's a relationship she's been in, I think, since her teenage years. And so she's leaving that relationship. She's leaving its potential for children. And she's sort of looking at, well, radical women, radical literary women to help her reorient herself in her new life. And so she looks at the life and work and kind of how it relates to her and how she finds meaning in it of all these big female literary stars like Virginia Woolf, Sylvia Plath, Toni Morrison, Simone de Beauvoir, Eleanor Ferranti. I wrote a little bit about it for my newsletter and I said, I know I'm meant to be more interested in their work and that those writers would rather I was most interested in their work, but I was actually really fascinated by their lives and particularly in every case, how much they had to overcome to make the work they made. I, well, you know that Virginia Woolf is the Your home girl. key to my heart and the key, yeah, <laughs> she's, she's the OG. 
and you know that I will read anything that has any tangential connection to her, so I will read that. I think you're going to love what I've been reading uh, <laughs> because it's quite me, and it's also quite apt with all the magical realism chat. It's a book which is out this month, this week actually. It's called Shark Heart by Emily Haybeck. It's about a newly married couple who are rocked by a doctor's diagnosis that the husband has a year until he turns into a great white shark. Every time I think you cannot find another book like this, like so specifically like this, you find a book like this. Anything weird, I'm in. I obviously picked up this book because the premise is is weirder than weird. But it is genuinely so much more than what it says on the tin. I, I can't express how much I loved it. It's one of the best things I've read in years. It's beautiful. It's profound. I've laughed. I've cried. I just want everyone in the world to read it. So read it and don't be put off by the shark thing. Okay, you've definitely convinced me. Can I borrow your copy when I next see you, please? No. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say, no, don't lose it because you lose all the books you read. I know. Okay, I'll bark myself. This is your official spoiler warning. Regular listeners to Book Chat will be familiar with it. We are doing a meaty chat about the book. We're not doing a tiny spindly little blurb. So there will be spoilers. We want to talk about everything. If you haven't read the book and you don't want spoilers, I guess you better go away. Right, Bobby, onwards. Pandora, what are we reading this month? I love it. You always ask me that like you haven't actually read it. It's only Bridget Jones' diary. Bobby, is what it? is your history with this book? I've Well, I've never heard of it. No, I'm just kidding. It, it, it's obviously I've seen the film. Everyone's seen the film. I've seen it several times. I had actually never read the book, though. And I, I was very excited to finally have an excuse to, to sit down and read it when you suggested it. I also have to apologise because at the end of last episode, I said we were taking it back to the noughties this month. But both of these books are actually from the 90s with films that came out in the noughties. And I think a a lot of people, their enduring image of these books, their enduring memories of these books are the film adaptations. Yeah, of course, it's the Brokeback Mountain effect. I hadn't read this book for yonks, probably since I first read it, however long ago. I don't think I'll have read it when it first came out because I would have been nine. And I was a precocious reader, but I think... (laughs) I think, I mean, I was reading Jilly Cooper at 10, but I, yeah, I think Bridget Ozari would have really fully gone over my head. So I probably read it for the first time, maybe 20 years ago. And I think I assumed the film was much better just because I've rewatched the movie so many times. I know it almost off by heart. I adore it. And as such, I had Renee Zellweger and Hugh Grant's, etc. voices in my head the whole time I was reading the dialogue. But I loved this book. I loved it. In a 2007 poll, The Guardian named it as one of the 10 books that best defined the 20th century, along with Catcher in the Rye and 1984. Wow. I mean, that's a diverse offering. Yes, it's most definitely. But I totally agree with them. I reread it in a night, which I did with High Fidelity also, and I just had a whale of an evening. The script of the film sticks so closely to the dialogue of the book, which really isn't surprising because it's so good, it's so funny, and it's very pithy. Did you find the same thing? Yeah, I think especially because it's in in such short snapshots, it did feel like reading a screenplay. And, and so much of what makes the film so funny is within these pages. 
Also such famous lines. Chechnya with her hoover. Have it oof, her mother. Mr. Tits pervert. <laughs> Mr. Tits pervert. I like her. Shut up, please. I'm very busy and important. And and a personal <laughs> fave. When are you going to get sprogged up, old girl? <laughs> Jeffrey Alconbury. Is he Una's husband? Jeffrey, in the film, I just keep thinking of like, honk, honk, or whatever he does when he yeah, like grabs on a, her. On a bunny tail. <laughs> exactly. I love shut up, please. I'm very busy and important. She's also really bustly, which I really enjoy. And her mum coming up to London with a piece of fish. <laughs> I have to say, I was a little disappointed to see that my absolute favourite line from the film is not in the book. That line is, at sit-up Britain, no one ever gets sacked for shagging the boss. <laughs> oh my God, it's so naughty. And like your tits in that top is a direct yes, quote. Yeah. So what did you think for your first read? Oh, it's, it is brilliant. Like there, there's no, there's no getting around it. It's just, it's great. I think something that doesn't come across in the film is how much of the humour is in the, the way the book's formatted, the, 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 the fact that it's a diary. So you have these little, um, little logs at the start of each day and it'll be like alcohol unit six, drowning sorrows, cigarettes 19, fumigating sorrows, calories 3,983, suffocating sorrows with fat duvet. Or there's the way that she speaks like she's actually writing a diary. So there's one entry that really made me laugh that's just 11pm. It is far too late for Daniel to ring. V sad and traumatised. V sad and traumatised. She was really preempting text speak, I think, as well. Also, that one day... In love with Daniel Cleaver next day. Absolutely do not love Daniel Cleaver. It reads a bit like a 14-year-old's diary. But if we were all being honest with ourselves, I think most of us would sound 14 in a diary. Bobby was a bit snappy with me, have tummy ache, lost fave socks, etc. Yeah, sorry for being snappy. <laughs> it does It does feel pretty inventive and, and, and quite revolutionary. Even when you're reading it now, you can tell that she was doing something different. I really wish I'd been around for when it first came out because I'm fascinated by publishing trends and I'd love to have felt the winds of change when it was published because the impact of this book was huge. Almost one million reviews on Goodreads to date. BTW most reviewed is Harry Potter, eight million. So to put it in context, one million, that's a lot. But culturally, it was huge too. In the same way that Friends was one of the first shows to show unmarried people living together in their mid to late 20s. This book was the first book to write about the cultural divide between single people and married people. She actually coined the terms singleton and smug marrieds. I had no idea she came up with singleton. And all the very funny stuff about being found dead, eaten by Alsatians reveals this very real cultural pressure that Bridget is not going to find someone to marry. And in that sense, it's a fairly traditional book. She's absolutely desperate to find a boyfriend. But it's also, I think, a story about cultural change. In the in the 90s, remember, this was ladder culture too. Women were saying, we want to shag and drink and smoke too. Which I think makes it a really good companion piece to to Nick Hornby, which is the sort of, uh, almost the opposite. It's, it's lads who are realising that maybe, maybe there's more to life than just being laddish. Totally. And there's also the contrast of that, behavior that would have been considered sort of like vulgar or garish from women that contrast with her predate preparation the rigmarole that women felt perhaps still feel i hope a bit less but i don't know to be match perfect when the man just turns up for the date in his suit straight from work so this is one of the diary entries 
completely exhausted by entire day of date preparation. Being a woman is worse than being a farmer. There is so much harvesting and crop spraying to be done. Legs to be waxed, underarms shaved, eyebrows plucked, feet pumiced, skin exfoliated and moisturised, spot cleansed, roots dyed, eyelashes tinted, nails filed, cellulite massaged, stomach muscles exercised. The whole performance is so highly tuned you only need to neglect it for a few days for the whole thing to go to seed. And then later when Daniel Cleaver cancelled, she said... Cannot believe it. I'm stood up. Entire waste of whole day's bloody effort and hydroelectric body generated power. However, one must not live one's life through men, but must be complete in oneself as woman of substance, which is obviously <laughs> completely undermined by that whole diary entry. And he stands her up as well. Daniel Cleaver, the the bastard. It's, uh, as as Bridget would say, emotional fuckwittage. <laughs> yes. Fuckwit. Was emotional fuckwit her as well? It must be them. I, I think so. I also love the emphasis on friendships and the telephone. So Sharon is furious when Bridget calls her when Sharon's been out as she wants to ring 1471 to see if her crush called her while she was out. And now her last received call will be Bridget. It reminds me of Monica and the answer machine and friends. So many parallels here. Do you remember 1471 or are you too young? I, I actually do, and I, I could still reel off the landline numbers of all my best friends from primary school. I can just about remember the days when you, you couldn't use the phone if someone in the in the same house was on the internet. Yes, God, the dial-up. There's a lot about how the telephone is important to friendships in this. The four best friends speak almost every day, and I loved that. It felt like a glorious precursor to smartphones and also a start of people acknowledging that platonic relationships were as important as romantic. So she says at one point, it was good ringing up Sharon to boast about being Mrs. Iron Knickers. But when I rang Tom, he saw straight through it and said, oh, my poor darling, which made me go silent, trying not to burst into self-pitying tears. I'm aware this sounds like a really stupid thing to say because this is a, a description of just like friendship. But but they're almost like a an IRL group chat, her and her friends. You, in modern books, you could imagine seeing their conversation presented on the page as like, whatsapp threads with with each of them having their own like style of friendship that said it is the period details that make this book so much better i I love how she does a lot of sadly listening to cassette tapes while smoking alone in a flat which is also a very uh common and favorite exploit of of the main character in high fidelity it is except she's eating a milk tray while she does it. I really miss mixtapes. There was something so personal about them. And another thing that really cements it in time is Jude reading so many self-help books. She ties herself in knots. Hold on, I just want to read this piece. God, it made me laugh. Bridget is valiantly trying to keep up with Jude's sort of daily self-help revelations. As luck would have it, Jude has just been reading a brilliant book called Goddesses in Every Woman. Book says coping with difficult times is like being in a conical shell-shaped spiral and there is a point at each turn that is very painful and difficult. And she goes on at length and then says, trouble is, now I have sobered up, not sure I'm 100% sure what she was talking about. (laughs) (laughs) And this again really cements it in time. Men are from Mars, women are from Venus, came out in 1992 And Helen Fielding started writing her columns for The Independent in 95, at which point that book was huge, huge, huge. I was once told it literally changed the way people saw dating globally. I can't even think of a parallel nonfiction book. Maybe Marie Kondo's one? Not quite so saucy. There'll be one 
like the seven habits of highly effective people that the yes the, yes. Link, the LinkedIn bros love sapiens or something like that. Yes, totally. One thing that really annoys me about this book, and it's not really even the people reading it, it's just how Bridget Jones, like Black Mirror, has become a sort of cultural term. It's been fully absorbed into the kind of the lingua franca of modern life, is people see Bridget Jones as a disaster case, which I really don't, because it's not like she doesn't hold down a job. She's not homeless. She doesn't let down any of her friends. She's just flappy and says daft things and has terrible taste in men yeah i'd i'd agree with that actually i something i found really interesting is when i was reading it i expected like big pants is something that everyone always talks about with bridget jones and that's like not really much of the book you know and her being like she's not particularly slobbish which is something that uh i think everyone refers to i I, she she seemed pretty well put together and happy and and she's got a, a good career and she's got a, her own flat in central London it's it's you know I'd, I'd quite like to be Bridget Jones I think now thank god we would definitely not see her as slobbish because now there's more of an understanding that like a woman is gonna get drunk on her own and wear a tracksuit and have messy hair but startlingly this apparently was still an unusual thing to document in the mid-90s I do like that when she is like unclean or, or leaves the washing up or something she refers to it as sluttish yeah my mum would call um, me and my siblings sluts when we didn't tidy our room, which I found really funny. <laughs> <laughs> um, I can see the point that Candice Carty Williams once made about why she wanted to write Queenie, that you only saw white women depicted in this way in fiction. It wasn't lovable to have a black woman who's a basket case in the same way. That inspired her to write Queenie, which is also a great book. It is. And, and yes, something that is quite striking about the book and the film in hindsight is is how white they are. And it reminds me of something like Sex in the City, or Friends in that respect. Also true. The other cultural point to make is that this book opened the floodgates for that most dreaded term, chiclet. I remember interviewing Jojo Moyes last year, perhaps, possibly for what writers read, actually. She wrote one of the biggest books of the last decade, Me Before You, and she said she got the idea to become a writer after reading Helen Fielding's column in The Independent because, like Book Chat alumni Armistead Morpin, Bridget Jones also started life as a newspaper column. Actually, I think you can tell that, can't you, with the staccato entries? I'm learning and and becoming quite amazed by how many great books did begin as columns. And I wonder if it happens anymore, seeing as people don't read newspapers in the same way. It's a huge part of what makes this book feel so unique because that like you say that's where the diary format comes from and 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 a lot of the, the formal inventiveness comes from. I feel like Fleabag was considered the kind of modern update of Bridget Jones. But I don't know how I feel about that as a comparison because Bridget's pretty emancipated from her parents. She worries about them as her parents, but she doesn't ask them for money or anything. I I almost, uh, when I was reading it, I was thinking of girls more. I think I think girls owes quite a lot to this, that, that, that blueprint. It's like the blueprint for that messy female hero in the big city, which I guess Fleabag is, is too. I also, I don't think this book would be called Chiclet if it came out nowadays. I think that specific label is is a product of the sexism of the time. And I think if a book like this came out nowadays, I don't think it would necessarily be called literary fiction, but I don't think it would be called Chiclet. I think it would be somewhere in between. Book club fiction, maybe, you know, or, or at least commercial fiction, not, not Chiclet, which is, is, I agree, a term that I think is usually used 
disparagingly. I mean, all those terms are so redundant because literary fiction can also be commercial fiction if it sells loads of books. Like, yeah, like exactly. Yeah. What really annoys me about the chiclet tag is that it is a shorthand for badly written. And within that category of chiclet, you've got India Knight and Jilly Cooper and Helen Fielding. And then you've got really, really toshy airport fiction, Mills and Booney type stuff. It's, it feels like such an unfair and not fit for purpose genre, basically. I feel like our other book, which I think is not necessarily any better than this book, I feel like that one would be called literary fiction. I actually agree with that. And Nick, Horn- Nick Hornby has been long listed for the Booker Prize. And I don't think a book like this would be. And I think, you know, same with David. David Nicholas has been long listed for the Booker Prize. And I think it is sort of a gender thing, I think. I suspect, Bobby, your reading of Chicklet is not extensive. Excuse me, I, I have read every single one of both the Gossip Girl and the Twilight books, so your your bias is, is showing. Why have you read every single one of the Gossip Girl books? Why? Because I wanted a window into the scandalous lives of Manhattan's elite, Pandora. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> let, let's move on before I have to explain myself. Nick Hornby himself is actually quoted on the, the cover of my copy, saying Helen Fielding is one of the funniest writers in Britain and Bridget Jones is a creation of comic genius. Love that. Probably right on both counts, I think. Uh, aside from the chiclet tag, what were the reviews generally like of this book at the time? I really like that they like each other. I want these authors to like each other. I want Rob and Bridget to like each other. Well, another famous fan, and this is a surprising one, and again, I like it because it gives the book the respect it deserves, is Salman Rushdie, who actually makes his cameo in the film even better. When I first watched the film, I obviously had no idea who he was. I obviously just assumed he was another what's it called, extra, just like I had no idea what or where Chechnya was or who F.R. Leavis was. F.R. Leavis? Mm-hmm. Wow. What? The F.R. Leavis, who wrote Mass Civilization and Minority Culture? Mm-hmm. The, the F.R. Leavis who died in 1978? When I first watched it, it, it went entirely over my head, but when I when I rewatched the film the other night and Salman Rushdie shows up at the party, I almost shrieked and then and then you've got um Jeffrey Archer showing up a couple of couple of minutes later I did feel like the Salman Rushdie cameo was tailored specifically for us and for recording this podcast although the most book chat moment in the movie has to be when Hugh Grant is rowing a rowboat in an unbuttoned shirt fag in mouth shouting I fucking love Keats personally I think the most book chat moment of that scene is this have you heard this one there was a young woman from Ealing who had a peculiar feeling. She lay on her back and opened her crack and pissed all over the ceiling. Oh, bollocks for shit. I'd also give special mention to the Wuthering Heights reference in the book when she first introduces Mark Darcy. She says, It struck me as pretty ridiculous to be called Mr. Darcy and to stand on your own looking snooty at a party. It's like being called Heathcliff and insisting on spending the entire evening in the garden shouting Kathy and banging your head against a tree. <laughs> it is objectively excellent that both Hugh Grant and Colin Firth are mentioned in the book and then are cast 
in the film and that the casting is so completely pitch perfect, especially because the mention of Hugh Grant isn't actually great. It's very newsworthy and, again, really secures the book to the date. It's when he was charged in the States for receiving a blowjob off a prostitute while he was dating Liz Hurley. I can still picture his mugshot now. I I actually really rate Hugh Grant for that because some people would have read that mention of himself in the book and been like, screw you, I'm not going anywhere near it. It shows that he's got a good sense of humour for for taking on that role. I also think it's indicative of the sheer power that this book had even before it was made into a film because Hugh Grant gets gets that mention as, as sort of a bad boy and Colin Firth is mentioned as the actor who played Mr. Darcy in Pride and Prejudice. So you can almost see in that that these two were Helen Fielding's first choices for those characters, for Daniel Cleaver and for Mark Darcy. And the fact that she could, you know, the people making the film could just say, these are the people we want for these roles and then get them shows just how much of a phenomenon this book already was. It also just shows what an excellent sense of humour they all had, including having the girliest fisticuffs in the history of time. That's how I imagine that you would fight Bobby. Oh, yeah, definitely. Floppy hair, weak wrists, that's me. Uh, there's there's no fisticuffs in the book. That's true. They they sort of have to cinematize it, though, don't they? Daniel Cleaver actually sort of just falls off a bit in the book. He doesn't really come back in the way that he does in the film. He his relationship with Mark Darcy isn't isn't really that much of a plot point in the book. The film embellishes bits, but it also leaves out bits which I think it was right to leave out. There's this subplot which takes up the amount of time that that the latter Daniel Cleaver stuff takes up in the in the film in the book that's given over to Bridget's mum becoming like an accidental con man and and fleeing to Portugal with her lover Julio Mark Darcy goes to goes on this like secret mission to Albufeira to bring her back I quite enjoyed that that's quite tales of the city but I can see why they ditched in the film and just stuck with a tangoed Julian and various shopping centers with have it all also, they ditched Tom's nose job. I totally forgot about that until I reread the book. And I found it so interesting as, like Rachel Green and Friends, this was around the time that cosmetic surgery became aspirational and normalised. Yeah, that that felt quite... Um, I didn't know what was going to happen when, when, you, you know, when Tom disappears and you think something's happened to him and he's, he's secretly had a nose job. It felt quite progressive. And I, I, I was interested to see that that didn't make it into the film. If anything, what would you have changed about the book? I think reading it as a time capsule is mandatory. The big bugbear, and my sister, who is 15 years older than me, said she remembered this as a bugbear even then in the 90s when it came out, is Bridget's obsession with her weight. Now, I don't have a problem with that per se. I think we need to be careful with the feminist project that says it's anti-feminist to want to be thinner because regardless of of whether or not that's problematic. The truth is that a lot of women do want to lose weight and you can't not write about stuff just because it might not be progressive. And this was, as we said, written over 25 years ago when we were in a very different place culturally. But the weight entries themselves are really galling to read, I imagine for most female readers, because she weighs nine stone and she's talking about fat seeping out of her. And I just think that's going to make most... Yeah, most female readers feel pretty terrible. I think it's good timing for this discussion, for us to have this discussion, because Bridget Jones recently turned 25, which meant there's been an absolute slew of reappraisals, you know, retrospectives. How does it look nowadays? 
the New York Times did not look back on it favorably. They said Bridget Jones deserved better. We all did. And they go as far to say that her relationship with Daniel Cleaver, who's her boss, makes for a chilling, upsetting read. But on the other hand, the Times, our, our time, the Times in the UK, really disagreed with that New York Times piece. They called it po-faced and asked the question, am I failing as a feminist if I don't always take life terribly seriously? I'm really interested to know what you think. Well, I miss the days when newspapers didn't respond to op-eds with an op-ed of their own. It's like the newspapers are talking to each other. Um, it's really navel-gazing. <laughs> it's, like it's like when brands talk on Twitter. <laughs> oh, but that New York Times piece is pretty dreary, isn't it? I mean, Bridget is a willing participant. I think that makes it sound like Daniel... Like, Daniel Cleaver's a creep. We all know that. But I think that makes it sound like she was seduced against her will. I'm definitely tiring of the revisionist thing. And I can see how this makes people go, well, the woke brigade is starting again, as it it is pretty po-faced. Bridget doesn't let me down. I mean, I wish she wasn't so worried about wearing nine stone, but I love her blue soup and her drunken nights in Cafe Rouge and her incredible friendships and her love for her friends and her love for her parents and her willingness to dress up for a Tarts and Vickers party. I also think both things can be true. It, it's clearly a bit of a relic. It can be criticised it would be written differently if it came out now. But it's also an important and hugely influential cultural artefact that shouldn't just be overlooked because some time has passed. It, it might be flawed, but it's also really forward-thinking in a lot of ways, and it's really funny. We should not be treating novels like non-fiction. Daniel Cleaver's not a real man. I think kind of weighing up the moral rectitude of these characters is... Well, I just think it's completely pointless. I don't want to talk about it as a cultural artefact either. I really like this book. For me, along with the book we're about to talk about and One Day by David Nichols, these are the best bits of funny, romantic, literary slash commercial fiction in Britain in the last 30 years. I do miss the days when books like One Day and High Fidelity and, you know, this wasn't, but books like that could be long-listed for the Booker Prize and still be really entertaining, really commercial books. It feels like you don't get that quite as much nowadays. This... This is the question we always ask. It feels like a bit of a moot point because this is very much Helen Fielding's magnum opus. But is this book classic Helen Fielding? It's definitely her her biggest work, isn't it? I can't remember what the follow-ups were like. Edge of Reason is the famous one. Probably good, but not as good. I would imagine so. Although I would say that Bridget Jones's Baby is a certified banger of a film. McDreamy in a tent. What more could you ask for? <laughs> Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Bobby, introduce us to our second book this month. Another absolute cracker that brought me so much joy last night on its third read. It's High Fidelity by Nick Hornby. And if this book isn't the male Bridget Jones, then it would only be because that title had gone to another Nick Hornby book. Maybe About a Boy, which has a film starring Daniel Cleaver himself. There's so much crossover between our two books today. Nick Hornby is actually mentioned by name in Bridget Jones's diary, which I found really 
entertaining when I when I got to that page. He was and still is a huge literary figure, most famous for writing these brilliantly 90s books about boyish blokes who like girls and pints and footy and music and don't want to grow up or be tied down until... They really are brilliant companion pieces, I agree. They read together so well. The only... I mean, had you, you... You said this your third time. The only Nick Hornby I actually read as a as a teenager, you know, around the time it was coming out, was Fever Pitch, which is the one that Bridget Jones mentioned. And is that one's more of a memoir about how, how football always gets in the way of his love life. Never read that, as have minus 10 interest in football. Same, but it could literally have been written about my brother, and I wanted an insight into what it was like inside his weird old head. I actually came to Nick Hornby's other books as an adult, and in all of them, there is always that there's always that thing that comes between these these man boys and their romantic relationships. So in Fever Pitch, it's football. In About a Boy, it's being perceived as cool. Here, it's music. You clearly had more of a relationship with high fidelity, an earlier relationship with high fidelity than me. Is it a fave of yours? So the first time I read it was when Dolly was rereading it about six years ago and she got Nick Hornby to do a little reading of it for the Hilo, which was awesome. And then I reread it maybe last year and then again last night. Shall we Shall we give it a listen, Nick Hornby, uh, reading out a bit on the Hilo? We couldn't fill a room. I don't mean that we didn't have enough stuff. She had loads of books. She was an English teacher and I had hundreds of records and the flat is pretty pokey anyway. I've lived here for over 10 years, and most days I feel like a cartoon dog in a kennel. I mean that neither of us seemed loud enough or powerful enough, so that when we were together, I was conscious of how the only space we occupied was that taken up by our own bodies. We couldn't project like some couples can. Sometimes we tried when we were out with people even quieter than us. We never talked about why we suddenly became shriller and louder, but I'm sure we both knew that it happened. We did it to compensate for the fact that life was going on elsewhere, that somewhere Michael and Charlie were together, having a better time than us, with people more glamorous than us, and making a noise that was a sort of defiant gesture, a futile but necessary last stand. You can see this everywhere you go, young middle-class people whose lives are beginning to disappoint them, making too much noise in restaurants and clubs and wine bars. Look at me. I'm not as boring as you think I am. I know how to have fun. Tragic. I'm glad I learned to stay home and sulk. Ours was a marriage of convenience, as cynical and as mutually advantageous as any, and I really thought that I might spend my life with her. I wouldn't have minded. She was okay. Oh, he just seems like... Is he just the nicest guy? So nice. I mean, he absolutely did not have to say yes to that request. (laughs) (laughs) So High Fidelity is Nick Hornby's first novel. It's about a man called Rob who owns a record shop in North London. It starts with him listing, very famously, in Desert Island Discs style, his top five most memorable breakups, all of which pale in comparison to Laura, who's just moved out and left him thoroughly depressed. But he pretends, and I love this, that Laura hasn't even touched him emotionally, so he lists those five relationships to let her know she hasn't hurt him a Jot, the whole vibe is here are five relationships that really hurt me, which you didn't. And he's listing them to himself like a sort of diary. Yeah, but it's it's addressed at Laura, which is brilliant. <laughs> it's so like bitter. And the book uses uses Rob's failed relationship with Laura 
and the relationships that came before as a jumping off point for a book about relationships and about music and about the intersection of the two. But really, I'd say it's a breakup book. And I think that in the same way that Bridget Jones is an all-time brilliant book about sex and relationships, you could argue that High Fidelity is an all-time classic breakup novel. Yeah, I really adore that as one of his exes points out, he's doing the classic man in his mid-30s post-breakup. What's it all for thing? What are the other classic breakup books? So I think we disagree on this one, but Less by Andrew Sean Greer is a long-time favourite of mine. Yeah, I stopped reading that. Yeah, I need I'd to see... maybe go back. Okay, all right, I'll go back. I think it's a bit of a Marmite book, that one. Like, cause some people say that. I, I love that book, and I think it's a really good book about a breakup. Heartburn by Nora Ephron, maybe? That's a that's a that's an all-timer, isn't it? Of course, the all-time best piece of art about a breakup is Forgetting Sarah Marshall. I love that you call it art, but I do find Forgetting Sarah Marshall very funny. David Nichols wrote a good one, too, about a married couple breaking up called Us, and I think the man... Douglas is played by Tom Hollander. Hollander. <laughs> yeah, I always get Tom Holland and Tom Hollander mixed up. It's really irritating. His name's great because it sounds like he's more Tom Holland than Tom Holland. <laughs> um, but yeah, that, that's a that's a good TV. That's a really good TV show. Actually, I haven't read the book, but the TV show is really good. Very sad. But then this this book is funny. Uh, High Fidelity is funny, but it is also somewhat sad. It's quite bleak. Rob's outlook is very bleak. He's He's miserable in the present, but he's also looking back on all these past relationships with rose-tinted glasses and over the course of the book realises that they were all somewhat miserable or at least not as as great as he remembered too. It's almost an anti-Bridget Jones in that way because even though Bridget Jones is, is fairly realist, it's very romantic. You, you, you know, she literally ends up with someone called Mr. Darcy. Even the kind of happy ending in High Fidelity in which spoiler, spoiler alert, skip forward 30 seconds if you don't want to hear this, Rob gets back with Laura. It's quite sad because you're not really sure that they should be back together or that they were very good for each other in the first place. There's a line from her about like them, the reason they get back together is because it's too much effort just not to be together. I don't find it bleak. I find it really tender and honest. I I think him and Laura have a pretty good relationship. I think what he is searching for, both in himself and his relationships, is impossible because, and he puts this so well, the biggest problem with Laura is that he can never meet her again for the first, second or third time. I think in that respect, the book's quite philosophical and and quite deep in a way that people don't really expect or or remember it as. And that's something that both this and Bridget Jones have in common, that they're they're quite underappreciated and remembered as not as, almost not as smart as they are. I mean, they're both massive, obviously. I'm not saying that they they flew under the radar at all, but I think people remember them as something different to what they actually are. They remember them as outright comedies or rom-coms when they're they're deeper than that. Particularly High Fidelity. It's so astute emotionally about the conflicted place Rob finds himself in. And there's so many dual moments, like at Laura's father's funeral, where she makes Rob have sex with her because she says she's either going to have sex or she's going to tear her arm off because she just needs to feel something. She says she's numb through grief. And so Rob has sex with her because how can you refuse someone at a funeral, especially someone you've previously hurt? And it's funny and sad, but it's also so astute on the madness of grief, hers, and guilt, 
his. And then when Marie asks Rob to have sex with her, because she says you can be traumatized and still be horny, and he literally shudders and wonders how anyone other than Americans can have sex with Americans when they use words like horny. <laughs> That's so good. I, I normally hate it when people people go like, oh, that... That's so British. The humor's so British, but this this book is so British. It's so British, which is why it's so interesting that the two big adaptations have been American, and that the John Cusack film is like as much of a cultural phenomenon as as this book. It's it reads like such a British book to me. I've never seen a John Cusack film. I would love to, but yes, I mean, I th- I think way more, which is something I love, I guess, about doing book chat way more than we foresaw these books have such a natural relationship yeah yeah and something really really interesting we we actually had an email from a listener called emily ahead of this record she emailed about an episode of the your booked podcast with Catherine heine who you've mentioned on the podcast before where heine talks about bridget jones and high fidelity as a pair she said she she moved to london in 1999 and those were the first two books she read and was like oh my god london's so amazing here's here's a clip of her talking about them both of those books just really broke open the idea for me that you can write a a comic novel and it can also have serious points and it can affect people and people can learn from it that that a comic novel can be everything a serious novel is at the same time. I love that she read them as a pair and she moved to London. I think that should be mandatory when you move to a city that you have to read its most famous literary exports. For example, if you move to San Fran, you have to read Tales of the City. See, I, I'm, such a, I'm such a wanker in terms of that. I do that when I go on holiday. I went to Valencia recently and was like, I'm going to reread Fiesta by Hemingway. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> you are a wanker. <laughs> I am a wanker. So this book is filled with ennui and mid-30s despair. Rob is a great character because he is the archetypal Nick Hornby hero. And there's a bit early on where he describes himself that I just wanted to read a a condensed version of because it's so Nick Hornby. What am I? Average. A middleweight. Not the brightest bloke in the world, but certainly not the dimmest. I read The Guardian and The Observer, as well as the NME and music glossies. I'm not averse to going down to Camden to watch subtitled films. I'm average height, not slim, not fat, no unsightly facial hair. I keep myself clean, wear jeans and t-shirts, and a leather jacket, more or less all the time, apart from in the summer, when I leave the leather jacket at home. I vote Labour. I have a pile of classic comedy videos. I can see what feminists are on about, most of the time, but not the radical ones. I think between this book and Bridget Jones, there's such a there's such a strict gender binary. Like men men act like that and women act like this. And they're just it's almost like what, what we'd see now as cliches of what, what men and women are is is how people actually saw themselves back in the nineties. I found high fidelity quite progressive though. What was your favourite bit of the book? I I mean it's a really obvious answer, but I think the way the book talks about music and and specifically the way it, it applies that desert island discs all-time top five approach to life is really well done there's this amazing really well executed scene at the end where he's being interviewed by a journalist he fancies and he makes this he makes a fool of himself calling her up again and again because he can't decide on his top five best songs of all time it's like so cringe but so funny but then on on a more profound level the way music's used it all points towards this really interesting central idea in the book, which is what really matters is what you like, not what you are like. 
And because of that, Rob has this obsession with mixtapes and and the book is constantly referring to characters spending hours making compilation tapes and CDs for their loved ones. Uh, it, it's presented as a 20th century 20th century equivalent to to like a heartfelt love letter. And Rob says at one point, making a tape is like writing a letter. There's a lot of erasing and rethinking and starting again. A good compilation tape, like breaking up, is hard to do. I think my favourite bit of the book is when Laura and him get back together and she takes him to meet this couple he'd always refused to meet before as he thought they'd be smug marrieds. And he likes them so much. And then at the end, with a twinkle in her eye, Laura asks him to look at their record collection and it's really naff. It's the kind of record collection that makes him dislike someone on site. But he can't dislike them now. Laura knows this and he knows this. It's too late. They've bonded. And she set him up in this really quiet and brilliant way, laying bare how dumb it is that he thinks agreeing with someone's taste is a replacement for liking a person or even yourself being a whole person. And I think that's what the book is about for me, seeing yourself as a whole person, because Rob admits he only ever functions properly with a partner to either moon over or resent and how to maintain energy in a long-term relationship. It feels like a good companion piece to Esther Perel's mating in captivity. I just want to read these two bits. Laura says to him, you are exactly the same person you used to be. You haven't changed so much as a pair of socks in the years I've known you. If we've grown apart, then I'm the one that's done the growing and all I've done is change jobs and hairstyles and clothes and attitudes and friends. And that's not fair, Rob. You know I couldn't go to work with my hair all spiked and I can afford to go shopping more now. And I've met a couple of people I like over the last year or so, which leaves attitude. You're tougher, more confident, maybe harder, less neurotic. Are you intending to stay the same for the rest of your life? Same friends or lack of them? Same job? Same attitude? I'm all right. Yeah, you're all right, but you're not perfect and you're certainly not happy. So what happens if you get happy? And yes, I know that's the title of an Elvis Costello album. I use the reference deliberately to catch your attention. Do you take me for a complete idiot? Should we split up then because I'm used to you being miserable? What happens if you, I don't know, if you start your own record label and it's a success? Time for a new girlfriend? You're being stupid. How? Show me the difference between you running a record label and me moving from legal aid to the city. I can't think of one. All I'm saying is that if you believe in a long-term monogamous relationship at all, then you have to allow for things happening to people. And you have to allow for things not happening to people. Otherwise, what's the use? Yeah, I think I think Rob, the book is really about Rob grappling with who he is as a person it's this sort of not quite a midlife crisis but this this mid-30s crisis that he's having and and the music and the relationships are actually really a tool for rob to actually discover who he is and what he wants to be well he's got this childlike obsession with things staying the same any reviews you agree or disagree with i mean it was it was hugely critically acclaimed when it first came out in 1995 Every review went for the same pun. The Guardian said it's like listening to a great single. The New York Times went one further and said it fills you with the same sensation you'd get from hearing a debut record album. It does have that. It has that sort of infectious energy. It's it's a really fun read. And I think pretty much unanimously, all of the critics felt exactly the same. Anything you'd change? It's a, bit, it's, it's a similar question to with Bridget Jones because it's a time capsule once again. Obviously, certain elements have aged awfully. There are certain lines from the from the teenage boys section that that we couldn't even say out loud on this podcast. Women are talked about and treated by certain male characters in a 
to put it nicely, a throwback way. <laughs> but once again, it's a, it's a product of its time. And I do think you're right in terms of it being quite progressive. It it grapples with the kind of conversations we're having about masculinity now. Massively. But it, but maybe in a slightly more primitive way. There's one bit I liked where, where one of Rob's mates makes fun of his other mate for having a girlfriend and not hanging out with them anymore. And Rob, to the reader, says this. I feel as though I've been having conversations like this all my life. None of us is young anymore. But what has just taken place could have happened when I was 16 or 20 or 25. We got to adolescence and just stopped dead. We drew up the map then and left the boundaries exactly as they were. I think, you know, that line could have been written today. It's the perfect summation of what men can be like at the worst of times, which is teenage boys in grown-up bodies. Absolutely. In such a race to grow up and then just stop still. Would you say it's classic Nick Hornby in that respect? Yeah. I mean, that... that one paragraph is is basically what about a boy is about and and yeah. <laughs> and fever pitch too really like rob is is as i said definitely a, a nick hornby archetype but but so much of that and of what makes his book so fascinating to reread is the same as bridget jones they are so typical of what culture was like at the time especially in terms of their approach to gender and to sex and relationships this these books were written in the era of page three and and loaded and and McCoy's man crisps and and Yorkie not for girls. I still ate it, Bobby. I still ate a Yorkie. Well, you, yeah, that is um, daring. And do you remember the Lynx adverts where where deodorant would send women in in bikinis swarming? I wore Lynx actually as well. Africa, you're a rebel. <laughs> and then on the flip side, you you had you know Sex in the City, what women want, as you say, chick lit men are from mars women are from venus the gender binary was so comically enforced by the media that even though it's easy to reread these books and say oh the men act like slobs and pigs and the the women's self image is heartbreakingly low it's all a product of that environment what do you think would would you would you change anything in a in a in a book like this yeah, I I feel less, I guess, hand-wringy about that because, and I think it's a discussion we had where we were talking about All That Man Is by David Saloy. I do think teenage boys say revolting things. Um, I think lots of us, when we're being honest, say lots of awful things. And I definitely am not one who wants to sanitise fiction. Um, but yeah, some bits have definitely aged, of course. What would I change? I'm not a muso, so the music stuff really went over my head. But it annoyed me less on a third reread. And also I would have him take the tangoed woman's estranged husband's record collection. He's broke. She's offering the whole thing to him for 50 quid. I cannot believe he left it. Her ex sounds like a fuckwit. Yeah, that really infuriated me as well. I get I get why he doesn't but um he should have taken the record collection and it does that that bit actually gets a lot more attention in the in the tv show but we'll get to that and the ex who does show up in the tv show is a fuckwit i something i found when i was when i was reading it i i constantly found myself getting surprised at how long ago 1995 feels like in this book there's a bit which i i laughed out loud at even though it's not meant to be particularly funny well it, it is but for different reasons one of Rob's mates won't come out for a pint because he's already rented his video for the evening. I miss Blockbuster. I miss the ceremony around things that we used to have because it took time and preparation. And there's none of that now with streamers and Spotify. None of it is like destination book in advance viewing. It was a lot easier to to choose at Blockbuster because you had like limited choice, whereas now it's like you can watch everything. So I don't know 
What Paradox of choice. Oh, yeah, Paradox it's hard. Choice. It's hard living in the modern world. Um, I also I couldn't work out exactly how old fashioned running a vinyl shop is supposed to be in this book because they they talk about it like they're pretty old school, but then they're also they listen to cassette tapes, which to the modern reader feels just as old school as a vinyl. So I couldn't tell if it was like an antiquated exploit or if it was i don't know it, it, it I, I i struggled to um work that bit out yeah but vinyl heads have always kind of existed haven't they like they exist now so even though you can listen to music on spotify loads of people still have record players and buy records it's just uh if you're like a particular music fan and also whilst i'm not a muso a lot of uh, Rob's favourite artists are actually artists I love, like Stevie Wonder and who are the other ones that he really loves? Like his top five that he rewrites and rewrites and rewrites are songs that I really, really like. So I guess that he's very old school. Um, but talking about the shop, it actually really reminds me of Notting Hill. And I wonder if High Fidelity was an influence on Richard Curtis when he was writing it. Because in... High Fidelity, there's a drunk man, Johnny, who comes into the shop three times a week, always asking for music. They don't sell. And it reminded me when the Irish man comes into Hugh Grant's travel book shop. Irish man? Well, there's definitely a man that comes into Hugh Grant's travel book shop asking for books that he doesn't sell. And also in High Fidelity, he only gets two to three customers a day. He's bored sideways most of the time. Again, very Hugh Grant's travel book shop. God, that reminds me of the shop assistant in the bookshop. Martin, who, when they are both broke, he offers to buy him a demi capu. <laughs> uh, I'd like a demi capu right now, actually. I would say one of the things which is dated the most in High Fidelity is that Rob is presented as quite uncool and, and kind of a disgrace because he owns a record shop and, like, owning a vinyl shop in North London nowadays would be about the coolest job you could have. I think most of the disgrace stuff is in his own head, though. Isn't that the point, that he is his own worst enemy? Laura doesn't mind that he owns a record shop and barely sells any records, per se. What she minds is that he seems to have absented himself from life, that he doesn't have any forward momentum, and he's got really snide and bitter about people. And actually, she says, what defined him to her wasn't his record collection or his music taste, but his kindness. And when that went, she went. Yeah, that's true. He he has this monologue about real men working in, in factories or in the city. And he, I guess he feels like his, his vinyl shop, which doesn't really have any customers, exists outside of real life because he's, he's delaying real life. That said, I do, I do think the snide bitterness is the funniest thing about this. But there's a, there's a line where someone comes into the shop and gets this treatment. They get told, why not? Because it's sentimental, tacky crap. That's why not. Do we look like the sort of shop that sells fucking I just called to say I love you? Yeah, I mean, I felt quite sorry for that guy. I thought, just sell him the record. <laughs> is it the worst song in the world? It's like Daniel Cleaver all over again. He's not real, Pandora. <laughs> Would you have changed anything? I No, I don't think so. I think it's the perfect time capsule. I think it endures for a reason. And even its adaptations, even the modern adaptations, change very little we've mentioned the John Cusack film, incredibly famous, hugely cultural, culturally influential in its own right. I actually wanted to to shine a bit of a spotlight on the TV version, which came out last year, 
and stays surprisingly close to the source material, seeing as it's set in present-day New York and Rob is actually played by Zoe Kravitz. Yeah, it's one of her favourite books. I lost mine. So irritating. I constantly have to rebuy books for this podcast. I don't know what I do with them. Do I eat them? Anyway, Zoe Kravitz is on the front, which I found a bit weird, but they're obviously trying to target a very specific audience now as everyone else over a certain age has read it. I mean, it's the only novel my husband has ever read, I think. He loves it. I think a lot of men would say the same thing, or at least would only have read Nick Hornby books or a Nick Hornby book. It is a real crossover hit. It's It's got genuine mass appeal without being naff. Some, an interesting fact I actually realised is Zoe Kravitz's mum, Lisa Bonet, plays the... Um, plays Mary LaSalle, the musician in the in the John Cusack version. So uh so it's like a family business. The show, I mean you can tell Zoe Kravitz is having the time of her life. It is so good. I was surprised by how good it was. And it's already gained a bit of a, a cult status and there was there was a lot of uproar when it was unjustly cancelled after one season so i'd say yeah, i wonder why I, re- I haven't watched it and i really want to i think they just cancel they just cancel stuff nowadays they they like you know it doesn't get a, enough of a viewership in like six weeks and they axe it it was on hulu in america i think uh it's on disney plus in the uk i would really oh that's why i haven't seen it i don't have disney plus oh i'm sorry i'll stop talking about it then but uh, to, to the listeners who do have disney plus I'd seek it out if you can. And and also, can someone please start a petition to bring it back? Will you be reading more Nick Hornby? Is there any Nick Hornby left for you to read? I read About a Boy many moons ago, but I actually can just remember when I think about About a Boy, all I remember is Nicholas Holt's weird haircut and Tony Collette mooning over him. So I definitely need to reread that. Killing me softly with his soul. <laughs> Please stop. It's quite weird. Shall I brave the football one? Yeah, I, I would really recommend Fever Pitch, actually. Just don't watch the film version where they swapped football for baseball so that Jimmy Fallon could play the lead. Oish. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening and for your always entertaining emails. We love hearing from you. So if you'd like to get in touch, drop us an email at bookchatpod at gmail.com. We love hearing from you. You are 90% of the time much more informed than Bobby and I are. Our next episode will be landing on the 1st of September and the books we'll be chatting about will be August Town by Kai Miller and Home Cooking by Laurie Colwyn. I haven't read either of those books. Have you? I've read one of them. Book Chat is hosted by Pandora Sykes and Bobby Palmer. (laughs) With sound by Joel Grove and production by Pandora Sykes. Hey, see you next month. Bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.